you are always teetering on the line between massive success and massive failure if you're going to subscribe to the Silicon Valley ideology. And clearly, here, Sam was a massive success until he was a massive failure. And Sam is obviously a cautionary tale. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Today's guest is Teddy Schleifer, a journalist who covers tech billionaires and their involvement in politics. He returns to the show to talk about his coverage on Puck's stratosphere column of Sam Bankman-Fried, the now arrested, very ambitious, complicated former billionaire crypto executive who funded some progressive organizations and politicians. Teddy was writing a lot about SBF before the meltdown and quite a lot since, so this episode is very timely. Teddy provides a useful perspective for understanding what's been going on there. We recorded this interview before this week's arrest. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Teddy Schleifer with Puck. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Teddy, since you've been on before, would you mind just telling people who you are and tell me, like, how are things at Puck lately? Things are, are going well here at Puck.news. For folks who have listened to previous episodes, I cover the world of politics and, and philanthropy with a focus on donors. So I'm based in Silicon Valley, was at Recode for four or five years, and now uh, have been at Puck for a year or two, writing about the world of tech wealth and what the wealthy are up to. And uh, a big story has obviously been Sam Bankman-Fried, who has been chronicled at Puck, maybe ad nauseum, but we love we love characters. And, and Sam is, is has been, and, and maybe was a character. When did you first write about Sam? So I first spoke with Sam uh, off the record um, in, I want to say September 2020. You know, I read campaign finance reports pretty closely. And I remember I was writing about this group called Future Forward, which was this, at the time, new Democratic super PAC, which was getting a lot of attention and frankly, a lot of money from tech donors. And there was this guy named Sam Bankman-Fried and this LLC called Alameda Holdings that was making, I think, 5 or $10 million in contributions in October to Future Forward. And I was thinking to myself, what the hell is this thing? So I talked with Sam. And at that point, you know, he was not, I mean, obviously, everyone knows who he is now. I remember at the time, like not being much about him on Google. And he and I kind of stayed in touch over the last three years or so. What was your impression of him that first time and early on in, in uh, learning about him? 
Yeah, I was actually looking at, I mean, it was an off the record call, but I was, I was looking at my notes just to kind of get for nostalgic purposes from that call. And I, I, I can't, I can't talk about what exactly he said, but, 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 you know, my impression, um, my impression was like, this guy clearly is going to be a player. And part of that was because I thought, you know, he was donating to this group future forward, which was not the obvious place you would donate to, right? There, 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 he was not donating to priorities USA or Senate majority pack. He clearly had put in the work to find, a rather obscure organization, which told me something. And then over the next, you know, six months to a year, you know, he kept on doing new interesting stuff in the world of effective altruism. You know, FTX, which I was loosely following, was becoming a bigger, bigger deal. Sam was becoming wealthier and wealthier. By the summer of 2021, Sam and his brother, Gabe, had basically helped start a new Washington lobbying organization and they were spending what would eventually be tens of millions of dollars on that. By 2022, he had started a super PAC and became one of the biggest donors in the country. Like I felt like I was watching um, the rise of a new child almost in, in real time, right? There was this uh, this baby, this infant that you're talking to on the phone. And then in like in this in the span of like a year and a half, he suddenly is like the second biggest donor in the country. Like usually, I mean, you know, you know this stuff, Nathaniel, just from watching people rise in politics usually it takes like decades for you know they get their feet wet they go to a fundraiser suddenly they are going to multiple events and becoming major players here you had like an education process shrunk to 18 months and obviously the end of the story is ironic because you then have this like massive destruction of a player in like a week and a half so easy come easy go uh, i guess i don't know how easy that's going to be the going but um, it, during, before the meltdown beyond future forward, what was he supporting? Where was his money going? As far as you knew, I haven't studied it, but like, I understand he picked some house races in the primaries. He may have made some for-profit investments in the space. You've mentioned super PAC. Where else was he spending money? And how are we people responding to that? Because as we both know, there's a lot of people looking for money in in uh, political circles. Let me give you kind of a, a 30,000 foot view. The main place that Sam was spending money was on pandemic prevention, which was his pet issue, this idea that you know we should be working harder to prevent future pandemics and that COVID was just you know the first inning of, of the end of the world. And so Sam and his brother Gabe spent probably 20, 30, 40 million bucks on pandemic prevention through this lobbying group called Guarding Against Pandemics or GAP. Then there was the money that Sam spent on a California ballot initiative, um, which was similarly motivated, which was has not even appeared on the ballot yet here. It was going to this, this past cycle is now on the ballot for 2024, which is focused on basically setting up a statewide bureaucracy to battle future pandemics, Sam probably spent 10, 15 million bucks on that. But the highest profile expenditure was on in Democratic primaries. Sam and his kind of political advisors set up a super PAC called Protect Our Future. I know all these names sound like seven other thousand groups, but um, this was a group that was a huge player in Democratic primaries, especially in, in, in House primaries. Saying there were centrist candidates or, or progressive candidates kind of misses the axis here. 
they were looking for candidates who were going to prioritize um, anti-pandemic uh, initiatives. So some of those people would be considered more moderate. Some would be considered more progressive. They, but they were kind of eclectic. It was an eclectic group of people who were focused on this like niche policy issue. So Sam probably spent another 30, 40 million bucks on that. So I think ultimately when you add up all the money that Sam has spent on politics, probably 100 million, maybe 120, something in that ballpark. When I was talking earlier today to a, another fellow in the fundraising space for Democrats, his take on what uh, Bankman Freed what the axis of his decision-making in house races was a little different. He said that his understanding was it was a crypto-based axis, and he was investing in candidates who would be a bulwark against crypto regulation, and that he was doing that on both sides, and that that was the singular basis. Do you have any sense that that is wrong or right? I mean, you just said that it was about the pandemic stuff and people obviously can have multivariate calculations about how they put money into politics, but is it possible that that's also part of the story? So it is true that at the same time Sam was doing everything I just said, he was also sort of the front man for the crypto industry's push to shape crypto regulation. Sam was spending a lot of time in DC, like 25% of his time in DC. And Sam was uh, like, I got the sense that Sam was enjoying this stuff. Like he was kind of enjoying being like a Washington mocker. So these were happening in parallel. Now, as you know, like things can't really happen in parallel, like one, one ricochets onto the other. And that's sort of the point that I think um, your fundraising friend is making is that like, well, whether or not the pandemic work was like a smoke screen for crypto, that's a pretty cynical view. But I do think it is objectively true that what happened with one inevitably affected the other, that one cause affected the other cause. Like if Sam Bankman-Fried is meeting with you to discuss crypto regulation, like you are damn well aware that he is spending a ton of money on pandemic prevention and may have backed you in your primary. Are you able to say as a congressman or as a congressional candidate, like, Oh well, you know, he was backing me for pandemic reasons, not for crypto reasons. Like you're aware of the fact that this is a benefactor who plays a big role or plays or could play a big role in your campaign. So ultimately, I do think these two things were more interconnected than they care to admit. Because if you talk to Sam's aides, as I have, you know, they are they almost bristle at the idea that your source just raised, right? The idea that this was not really about pandemic prevention. It was all about crypto. Because I think they think it cheapens Sam to being just another, you know, corporate hegemon who's trying to, you know, keep Washington out of his pockets. They think he genuinely felt that way. But I think both those things can be true. He could genuinely feel motivated by pandemic issues, but also like, hell yeah, it helped him when it came to crypto. I think that there's probably a lot of people that have followed this story closely, maybe not quite as closely as you. But for people who haven't, could you just explain quickly what was or is FTX and what broke it? I'll do my best. It's tough. Not an expert, but I, I, I can, give, can give the 101. Uh, maybe not the 201, but I'll give the 101. So FTX is a crypto exchange. A lot of clients overseas 
But, you know, for folks who are listening to this in the US, you know, until recently, you could go to FTX, the app or the, or the website and buy crypto. So you whether you're an institutional investor or you're just a regular Joe, you could buy, choose your currency du jour. FTX really made a big push, especially over the last 18 months, I would say, like during the pandemic to become the place where regular people would buy crypto. Like, I don't know if folks remember there was a Super Bowl commercial with Larry David that was popular. You know, Tom Brady, Steph Curry were doing influencer marketing for for FTX. Like it was a cultural product. And that was why Sam did a ton of PR. They were always trying to be the place where um, regular people could buy or sell crypto. That's one part of the story. Other part of the story is an entity called Alameda Research, which was owned by Sam principally, though not run by Sam. People will debate that till to whether that is actually true. And what happened was FTX, it was basically a bank run. I mean, you know, what happened was FTX uh, had questions around solvency that were sort of spurred by their competitor, but we'll move along that part of the story. And Alameda Research, which was this independent entity that was tied to FTX and is basically, it's not really a hedge fund, but you can think of it as a hedge fund, something that invests in other cryptocurrencies and along with a hell of a lot of other things, as, as we now know. Alameda, um, which is this separate entity, was having a tough go of it financially and dipped into FTX's corporate deposits um, in order to make up its own shortfall. So to make this like very, very simple, it's as if you know you have a deposit at Bank of America. Bank of America you know, has your $2 and suddenly Bank of America Research or Alameda Research Bank of America version needs $2 to because they lost $2 investing or in a Lynch or something that they own. Yeah. Yeah. Right. right. Or Merrill Lynch. That's, yeah. that, that's the actual yeah. example. Uh, Merrill Lynch uh, needs, needs, needs $2 and suddenly your $2 are gone. And then, you know, you go to get your $2 and you're like, where's my $2? So there are, you know, six to 10, something like that, billions of dollars in assets that have sort of vaporized. And like, let's not lose track. These aren't just numbers. Like there are real people out there, right? Who, who had, you know, who may have watched the Larry David commercial or Steph Curry told them to buy crypto and they bought crypto. And like, there are real people who are victims here who now no longer have the money. And the company has filed for bankruptcy. Sam McMahon-Fried has been asked as CEO. Um, and yet he is still doing interviews um, <laughs> and still still part of the, uh, the zeitgeist. So that's the state of play, at least as of we're recording right now. And there's a lot of questions about will Sam McMahon-Fried eventually face criminal charges? And one of those interviews you got. That's true. Not that exclusive at this point, but Sam and I, as we talked about, go way back. What changed for you as a reporter when the meltdown happened? So like you're, you've been following him among a bunch of different donors in this kind of high end donor class. Suddenly one of the characters that you are pretty familiar with and have talked to directly is in a internationally notorious situation with the vaporization of his wealth and the scandal around it. I think you had a particular term, you know, like, I don't know, blast radius or something about everything around it. But like, tell me about you as a reporter as that happens and going forward, because I've seen a lot coming out of you from that day yeah, yeah. onward. 
we are obsessive about about targets here at Puck, and and part of that's a business strategy, but but you know to you know try to make folks uh, subscribe. But part of it is like this is this is the you know obsession of 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 the political class we write about. You know, people were obsessive about Sam on the rise, and they're obsessive about Sam on the fall. And frankly, like personally, it, it was funny as as Sam uh, began his collapse, like people were writing me proactively saying like sorry for your loss as if you know this this character in my did life did you feel been, that way too not really i mean look i mean i i like sam all all, all well and good um as much as i like but, you're, I but you're a hard-boiled person i don't know it says it's just <laughs> to me it's to me it's a job um um yeah you know but yeah. i think i think people are saying sorry for your loss honestly not from like uh as if we're friends but like it's almost as if but you, you know, know losing a big source, you're losing somebody that you had connections to that was part of your reporting. Sure, but like also to some extent, yeah. the story became bigger. It's almost as if like you know when people cover, you know, if you cover Mitt Romney in 2012 and Mitt Romney wins, it's like probably better for your career than if Barack Obama wins. That's just the reality of journalism. I did, and to some extent, I do feel like I'm covering a big story about political. Uh, political spending by effective altruist donors and sort of the intersection of philanthropy and politics. And Sam was the avatar uh, avatar of that. I've really tried to own the political fallout. We've written a lot of stories about various um, entities that have been affected by Sam, ranging from Mind the Gap, which is a democratic donor network founded by Sam's mom. We broke a story a couple of weeks ago about Data for Progress, which was a Sam-backed polling firm that ousted its CEO, Sean McElwee, and sort of a Sam-adjacent uh, controversy. I believe you've had Max Wood on the show. Am I remembering this correctly? I've had Max Wood on. I've had Sean McElwee. I haven't talked to Mind the Gap, and yeah, I don't know no, much about no, that. No surprise there. They're, they're pretty pretty stealthy. But but Max Wood, who runs this startup called Deck, you know, we reported actually Sam bought Deck in, in a personal capacity for like four or five million bucks, which was never disclosed or announced but that happened a couple months ago and then we wrote a story a couple weeks ago about sort of the weird situation deck was in where they're part of the bankruptcy filing even though sort of accidentally i've really tried to own the political and philanthropic fallout as much as we can and it's an obsession it's an obsession though because you know i think part of being a journalist right is is what do you think is interesting as a reporter and that's a subjective opinion but i also think there's a lot of people in the political class who care about what happens to Sean McElwee and care about what happens to Max Wood. I guess through that, we care. What is the status of the money that he, uh, you know, like if he owns something like DEC or he's made donations to a nonprofit, of the money that he put into politics, what is left that's in play for being pulled back in the bankruptcy and and how do the entities that are tangled up in that deal with it the answer is is tbd but the potential scenario is for what are called clawbacks not a lawyer this is not legal advice but there is a potential depending on how the bankruptcy proceedings go depending on how funds are segregated that um creditors could try to claw back some of the assets that Sam and or related entities gave to other entities. So for instance, Sam Ekman-Fried 
donated money through his family foundation to the Intercept, right? Or to Semaphore. That was an investment. But so there's media properties, there's political properties, there's campaigns, there's super PACs. I think everything is on the table here. The challenge is obviously like some of this money has been spent. That's going to be a question for some wily attorneys to try to figure out how to get their hands on it. But like everybody who has taken money from Sam and or Sam related entities is or should be like on guard for possible clawbacks. And we'll see, you know, this is obviously the beginning of a story. We'll see where this all shakes out. But ultimately, um, the potential is, is there for, you know, the money that came from Sam to be for people to at least try to take it back. So, uh, you know, if you can spend the money ASAP, maybe you can avoid the lawyers. But right now, everyone's on guard. One of the startling things that Sam said in an interview was that he'd given as much money through dark uh, money vehicles to the other side. To Republicans. Yes, to Republicans. There's some uh, unclarity about how truthful that was, but he clearly has given some, and he seems to have gotten involved in Republican primaries, at least by his own testimony. And like there was an article in Atlantic about, which made the nice pun about him being a crypto Republican. What's your sense about where he came down politically in all honesty? I'm a seller on this narrative, Nathaniel. I mean, I, I, I think that Sam is just saying things that's based on some reporting, some speculation, some reading between the lines. Um, um, and what he said, correct, in an interview. Sam is saying a lot of things. We'll start with the fact that there's no way for Sam to know how much dark money he donated or how much, how much at least where he ranks in, in, the, in the pantheon of big donors. But, um, but you know, I have done some reporting on this. Sam was a player in some Republican primaries, um, you know, probably most prominently with, with Katie Britt in, in Alabama. And he did move some money to Republicans at the end of the cycle. Toward the end, he was kind of a believer that Republicans were going to win the Senate. Obviously, it didn't happen. And I thought Republicans would make a big game in the House. Sam thought he could be better positioned to be a player in Republican politics. I reported that FTX, at least, hired like a Republican fundraiser to be a Sherpa for them. The answer is, I, I don't totally know for sure, uh, but I do believe that he donated some money. Was it anywhere near the amount he was donating to, to Democrats? No. I think this is basically Sam just being Sam and, and, and saying some some crazy stuff. Tell me about how it's been to report on the post-SBF meltdown. How's it been for you? To some extent, it, it's it's fun. Everyone wants to be doing a big story. Um, you know, like, there is a lot of pain here. Like, I mean, I talk with Sam's team and people who have worked with Sam's team or people who are informally part of Sam's team. And there's a lot of feeling like betrayal, which from a news perspective is is good because people feel they, they you know, want to talk and... I'm happy to talk with anybody. As a reporter, like I, I empathize, I think, with a lot of the people who feel betrayed. Um, and and I know that it hasn't been easy for Sam's family, for instance. Like I've known Gabe a little bit. I've known Barbara a little bit. I, I know you're saying I was I'm a hard boiled egg earlier, but but I was sort of joking, but yeah. Yeah, no, no, I mean I mean I do I do have feelings. Um <laughs> and, and I, I do feel feel badly for anyone in the blast radius. How does it feel to have 
the big publications and tons of reporters into the story that you're, you know, that's been, you know, in a certain way, more yours than, than uh, broadly known until that point. I mean, that's, that's life in the NFL. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, it, it, it's, that's, that's just kind of table stakes when you're doing a big story, people are going to show up and, and, you know, it makes it competitive. And, and to some extent, the fact that it's competitive makes it, you have higher impact in your stories, right? Like, you know, it's funny because there are these things I wrote about Sam Bankman free that would have been very interesting to people six months ago, but no one cared or 10 months ago or, or two years ago. And now a lot of people care. So, um, well, there's probably a lot of people that, going back and reading your older yeah, stuff. Read, read the back, read yeah. the back catalog of Puck. Yes. At one point, I wrote a story, for instance, about like it was a very small item in in 2021 about Sam Bankman Fried doing this like donor conference or advisory conference in the Bahamas, where he was inviting all these people to like show up and sit down with him. It was like some political junket for for people to show up and suck up to Sam and Co. And it was just funny because like it's a sort of nugget that today if you put that on Twitter, people would crack up at it because it shows Sam being ridiculous. But <laughs> at the time, it was like just up another Tuesday at Puck. What do you think's the biggest misconception that's out there about him and his world? Um, good question. I think the number of misconceptions are actually declining. Like, I think people now understand him better. I, I do think one of the misconceptions about him was that he was this very partisan Democrat. I know I just gave you a speech about how Sam was not really doing that much Republican donations as much as he was saying. But it is true that he doesn't really care about the Democratic Party platform in any traditional way. Like, he cares about pandemic preparedness. He cares about nuclear nonproliferation. He cares about political wins like he cares about winning in a very effective altruist way but does he really care about racial justice or tax fairness or the traditional democratic stuff no and that's and that i think is a misconception because i do think there are especially like conservatives when they think about sam are like caricaturing him as the soros like figure reality is like would sam have cared if mitt romney won in 2012 probably not (laughs) And also the irony here is that there was also a good amount of Republican money that was being spent by another FTX executive. So the idea that this is some liberal plant uh, doesn't really add up. What do you think of Sam now, now that all of this has gone down and you've looked at it and had some perspective? What's your view of him? So I've been thinking a lot about that recently. Like, There's not a lot of introspection in media. I certainly wrote some stories that Sam didn't like over the years, but, you know, broadly positive, I would say. And like, to what extent were I or other media complicit, right? I mean, um, I do think that we, and I mean, royal we here in media, like, clearly, I mean, this is an obvious point, we're not asking enough questions about like the FTX Alameda relationship. I admittedly, you know, was not reporting on that, though. I don't know if that's really an excuse. It's like saying, you know, oh, I wasn't covering, you know the mass murderers uh, murdering. I was only writing about his political spending. I, I, I was probably, you know, should have been more skeptical uh, of kind of the, the business um, to the extent that it intersected at least with what I was covering. Uh, on a personal level, look, it's clear that Sam was doing a million things at once. This idea that, of, of a CEO who focuses on the business and, you know, just does the blocking and tackling 
it makes for less interesting characters, right? Because you're you're doing less stuff and you're just you know focusing on your SaaS startup. So to some extent, the reason he was interesting to people like me was because he was doing a lot of stuff, right? And he's also very media friendly and accessible. But the the flip side of that is clearly he was you know and he submitted this he was not like paying enough attention to like the the details right he was sort of this ball frenzied energy and to what extent are those two things related like he was very interesting because he was doing all this political stuff and this philanthropic stuff but like maybe if he wasn't doing that stuff like we wouldn't have had this crisis right right so so i i guess one thing i think about him now is, is he was obviously overextended and maybe you could argue that he should have just not been doing any of this stuff to begin with, which would have made for less interesting stories. But he should have just been like a more normal CEO, I guess you could say, right? Someone who just focuses on his day job. That's the main thought I have now is like, I don't know whether or not this was, you know, the capital F fraud. That's a legal question. I don't know whether or not, you know, how unethical he was or how much he knew at the time or I don't know the answers to those questions, but it seems obvious to me that he was not tending the store enough, right? And focusing on the narrow parts of the job because he was doing all of these extracurriculars, which were somewhat of a distraction for sure. I don't know the guy at all, never met him. I am watching, as you are, some of the other billionaires with big influence in our world, the I don't know, the mentally ill billionaires in one fashion or another, like Trump and Musk. Is this guy in a category where you put him in a different psychological? Is he normal in? I mean, there's something about capitalism where people who can sell, who can inflate the potential of what they do, have an edge. There's an advantage to puffery, it would be one way of putting it, to talking other people to investing in you, to being employed by you, to building things with you. How do you think about him psychologically from what you've observed? Well, let's put him on a couch here. Um, <laughs> we can lose our psychiatrist license for this, but yeah, oh my God. Yeah, it's only a podcast. Um, no, I mean, um, there is certainly an element. There are lots of of leaders like Sam Bankman Fried, right? Who who are young white guys, you know, have these sort of Stanford adjacent pedigrees, who can sell, 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 and don't implode fantastically. Like he fits a pattern. Theranos is like, you know, it's not always a white guy, but yeah. It's true. It's true. Yeah, but often yeah, is. Yeah. There is an element of of him not really being that different than anybody else where clearly he had some you know accounting issues at the very least, but he fit the Silicon Valley founder kind of ethos or myth really and was able to use that pattern to raise a ton of money. I do think he also leaned into that myth, like everything from like the shorts, you know, as people who are not new to the Sam story now, like he often wore shorts and t-shirts and sort of dressed in this kind of casual, very casual way. In all these profiles he participated in, he would talk about the fact that he frequently sleeps in a beanbag. His hair is kind of crazy. When I interviewed him a couple of days ago, you know, he was like playing a video game as we we're talking. Um, like there's all this like, I'm just a crazy guy, you know, who knows what I'm gonna do tomorrow. He's not a buttoned up IBM executive. 
Right, right. But that's also sort of like like the Elon thing, right? Where yeah. I'm just like so you know slavishly devoted to to the work. I'm sleeping in the office in San Francisco. So that there there is an element of of him kind of cosplaying this like like Silicon Valley founder part. Um, um, that so so like is he okay? Like yeah, but the, but there's an element of, of of crazy that I think always is is part of the it's part of the act, right? Like, um, you know, another person in this world is, is Masa Sun, right? Who's the founder of SoftBank, who like talks very uh, explicitly about technology investing as like investing in crazy people, right? So like, you are always teetering on the line between massive success and, and massive failure if, if you're going to subscribe to the Silicon Valley kind of ideology. And, and clearly, you know, here Sam was a massive success until he was a massive failure. So, I don't know if he is is well. There is a broader context here, which you're right to point out about sort of Silicon Valley founders. And Sam is obviously a cautionary tale. One of the fascinating things about this to me is that I read that Michael Lewis, author of Big Short and Moneyball, was embedded with him for six months. What do you know about that? Yeah, I, I've, I've heard about that a couple months ago, that Michael Lewis was working on a Sam McMahon-Fried book. This is secondhand, and I'm just gossiping at this point. But yes, I, I was aware that Michael Lewis was doing a, a story about kind of crypto and like the rise of crypto, and like Sam was a main character in the book. Um, I've talked with some sources who have been interviewed by Michael Lewis for that book. Obviously, now a good book, right? <laughs> Obviously, he's he's he picked a right right place, right time again. Yeah, right. But yep. it's obviously not not luck. No. Lives nearby uh, in, in here in Berkeley. Does he? I'm certain that you've kept some contact, even while focusing on Sam, with the other big donors. How are they viewing this in the progressive space? So there's a little bit of schadenfreude, I'll, I'll say, um, fr from some people about, like, if Sam had hired me, this would have never happened. <laughs> other donor advisors. Because he was using his brother as a donor advisor, right? essentially. Yeah, basically. There's there's some other people. There's a guy named Michael Sadowski who um, is in New York. There's uh, Owen and Jenna Naranyan out here, Dave Wynn. He had some people, but his principal advisor was was his brother. I think other donors, uh, especially those who are not tied to Silicon Valley, like see this as a classic story of hubris, right? That like you need to go play the traditional game, whether not just in politics, but in philanthropy too, right? That like... This is, you know, why effective altruism is all bullshit, and and this is why you need to go give to the party committees because if you do too much and try to upset the apple cart, you know, apple cart will fall on you. So there's an element of that to this, but you know, I do think there's also an element of sadness, right? I mean, Sam was 30 years old, still is still is 30. <laughs> um, um, it's been it's been weird. It's been I mean, I'm 30, so it's been weird writing about a donor who's who's my age. Sam was becoming a big player and i feel like some of the sadness isn't necessarily about what sam was doing right now but kind of what he was gonna be doing in the future we wrote a story maybe two weeks ago about sam's next play that was now not going to happen called campaign for the future let me i mean something like that i don't remember at this point uh, but basically sam was like already already hatching his next act for you know, sort of a Gates Foundation like roll up of solving all of the great problems in the world, from immigration to climate to nuclear nonproliferation to technology to crypto, and he was going to be kind of 
this renaissance man solving all the world's problems. That isn't happening, obviously, now. So everyone was, everyone is a combination of, of sad and uh, maybe dancing on the grave. There's this notion that you become like a master of the universe when you enter the heights of wealth and influence that he was getting to. Yeah. We call my product at Puck the stratosphere because um, there, there is an element of, of um, hovering above us mere mortals as you go toward the sun. In this case, too close, but... Um, yeah, you got to be careful not to fasten your wings on with wax. Yes. So my attitude towards cryptocurrency for a very long time has been that it is terrible, awful public policy to allow it to exist in a sovereign nation. So just give you know, you know, you, you know more about, you know more about the technology than I do. So I, why, I, why do you think that? Because I think that a country should manage its own currency. It's a vital part of, of managing an economy and you take enormous risks in allowing that to leave the federal government, which is led by democratic elected leaders and, uh, delegated to Federal Reserve, which has evolved over many scores of years to have experts in managing the money supply that take it very seriously. And I understand some of the ideology around it. I understand people's attraction to it. I have many friends, some in particular who were very early miners of Bitcoin, got it free, got it plentifully, bought their houses because of it. So I followed it since early on. I've bought three Bitcoins myself <laughs> originally for $100. I sold one for $200 and the other two I lost in a problem with one of the exchanges that just went away. So I've doubled my money on that scale. But <laughs> <laughs> what I'm wondering is, do you have a sense politically of how this affects that part of the economy, which is now, in my view, gotten out of hand. It's going to be super hard to regulate. People like Bankman-Fried have done their best to set the stage so that it's tough to regulate. But this kind of thing, ironically, could backfire. And it doesn't take too many people losing large gobs of money before you pull regulators in, right? Have you thought about that? Is that part of the discussions that you report on? Yeah, that's that's a that's a great point, which is that uh, Sam is now probably a net negative to crypto regulation, at least the regulation that, that that he would want. Ultimately, right, this is now a story about how this very unregulated financial world would this have happened with fiat currency. You know, to go back to the Bank of America Merrill Lynch example, like that doesn't happen uh, because, you know, there's much greater regulation over how these entities move capital between them. You know, these things are regulated by the SEC. And uh, and they're insured yeah. to, you know, to a certain right, extent. Right, so that course. so that if if you're a depositor, I mean, because of the Great Depression, because of bank runs in history, we have public policy around these banks, which are not immune even now from trouble. But this is a Wild West again to some extent. Now Sam is like a a, a whooping post for for anyone who wants to take a shot at capitalism, at unregulated economies, at billionaires. 
left and right. The right is going to eat Sam up because he's this like big liberal. The left is eating Sam up because he's this rich kid who uh, thought he could play by his own rules. So I think the political legacy here is crypto is very much going to be on the defensive going forward. What's next for you? What are you working on in terms of stories and where is your reporting going more generally? Sure. So I am working on a story as we talk and probably will be out by the time this publishes about the parents, about Sam's parents, who are sort of these semi-famous folks in in the Democratic world, Joe Bankman and Barbara Freed, um, who are Stanford lawyers and are people who have been instrumental in Sam's upbringing. So I'm working on that. This is going to be a long story. And, you know, it's not going to be a publication all about the Bankman Freed collapse, but clearly this is the beginning of it. You know, I'm also beginning to think a lot about 2024 and thinking about the ways in which donors will, will be key parts of the debate over the nominees. Probably going to be more of a story on the Republican side. Like I've written a lot this cycle about Peter Thiel and Larry Ellison and sort of the Silicon Valley reactionary right, Elon Musk. To what extent will they get involved with Trump and DeSantis? That's another big storyline. But clearly, the pecking order is changing, right? Sam Bankman-Fried was someone who was going to be a huge player on the Democratic Party in 2024. Now he's not. And there will probably be some new character that will rise to, to, to be an obsession of ours here at Puck. Well, again, lovely to talk to you. Always learn something. I think you have a really interesting spot to help understand our country and appreciate you taking the time. You bet. Thanks for having me. That was Teddy Schleifer. Teddy is at Puck.News. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.